Through the fathomless depths of space swims the star turtle, the great Atuan. And on its back are five nerds trying to figure out just what it is that makes their Terry Pratchett's work both timely and timeless. So let your extreme sneezing club membership lapse, don't touch the glooper, and join us on our journey through making money and the complete discography. Good evening, and welcome to the complete discography. This is the 36th recording thereof. Uh, we tonight are recording, talking about the 36th book, surprisingly, of the Discworld series Making Money, uh, which was first published in Great Britain in 2007. And if any of you are old enough to remember what happened in 2008, this book, again, was scarily prescient. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I remember that. Yep. Uh, before we get started, we should do our silly titles. Uh, Justin, you want to lead us off? I am Justin, and I am ABD in postmortem communications with a specialization in applied neck. Uh, we're renaming that field. I'm Anna, and I'm currently training to be a professional chef for dogs. I'm Holland, Turvey Foundation Endowed Researcher in Applied Sheeponomics. I am a gold golem awaiting orders. And I am Aaron, acting vice chair of Veterinary's Blue Ribbon Commission on Torture Reform. Oh, I get it now. Uh, and we have two guests tonight. Holland, do you want to introduce yourself actually first? Sure. Um, my name is Holland Doherty. I am just about to start a new job at CSIRO, which is the Australian Federal Science Agency, as a modeler and researcher on the Future Protein Mission, which is really exciting and I'm also a huge stats nerd and a biologist. And this has also been one of our uh, uh, show super fans the entire time, which is great. Discworld has been like hugely influential on my life. So when I saw a podcast nerding out about it, I was just like, hell yes. I found my people. <laughs> um, so you're originally from the U.S. though, right? Yes, I'm originally from Florida, but um, I moved around a bit for college and grad school and then wound up in Australia on the... Well, it seemed like a good idea at the time, and someone I really liked working with in grad school was looking for a postdoc, and then I was here like a year, and it's like, oh, I like it here. I don't want to leave. <laughs> so I've uh, got residency, and then I'll be moving up to Brisbane once I find an apartment up there, so at some point in the next couple of months. But right now, I'm currently in the tallest city in Australia, which sounds impressive until you realize it's half the height of Denver. Uh, you know, Australia's <laughs> big, right? Yeah, it's it's. It's very big, and yet only has a smaller population, or like close to population as California. So it's it, it's very big, but there's not that many people. <laughs> <laughs> what was your first Discworld book? Do you remember? Uh, yes, actually, my first Discworld book was Guards Guards, which I think is a really good jumping on point for the series. And how I got into it was, if any of y'all remember back when Walden books was a thing, way oh, yeah. back in the day, oh, yeah. um, there was a Walden books at the mall. And at the mall. So, yes, at the, at the mall. This was after we moved to Iowa. And my mom realized that I could be bribed with books pretty easily to go shopping if I didn't want to go shopping with her. But there was the manager of the store named Paul, who I'm still convinced is a wizard. And he's been the manager of every single bookstore in that town. Like, he just bounced from chain bookstore to chain bookstore if they come in and moved out or whatever. And he got me introduced to Discworld. And... He started, he started me with that one and said, I think you'll like it. 
and I was about like 10 or 11. And I think books you find at that age are have potential to really influence your life. And in about the same year, I got into Discworld, Young Wizards by Diane Duane and X-Men comics. And I think that explains a lot about the gay nerd I turned out to be. <laughs> but I, was, I was pretty hooked. I was pretty hooked from the start and then read them in the marvelous order of whatever the library has in stock at the time on the shelf. So very out of order. But this one I remember specifically buying. It was the first one I bought in hardcover um, because it came out when I was in high school. Mm-hmm. I was very excited to be able to actually have, have them have it in hardcover right when it got out. And here's a question that I now have on my mind looking at our uh, recording calendar. Have you read The Shepherd's Crown? No, I have not, but I did buy a copy of it. And as I was buying it, I mentioned, I said, because I knew about the upcoming read through and I'm like, I'm going to buy this. Me and some friends are all going to read it and we're all going to cry. So it's on my bookcase. I can look at it right now in the Pratchett section of the bookcase right across from me in the living room, but I have not read it yet. Uh, that is the plan. Read it and cry. I'm I'm looking forward to it, but I'm simultaneously not. But <laughs> it'll be uh, in- interesting. The bookseller was certainly amused when I told them that. <laughs> uh, and Rich, you want to actually introduce yourself? Uh, yeah, I'm Rich Howard. I am a podcaster and game designer. Uh, I am one of the co-creators of Descent into Midnight. And I understand one of my other co-creators has been on the podcast. Friend of the show, Taylor of the Brush. That's right. An amazing designer. Um, And then I'm the co-creator and co-host of a podcast called Whelmed, The Young Justice Files, which is a DC comics, generally animation um, review cast. And we use the animated series Young Justice as a spring off point to talk about game design, uh, talk about gaming, talk about writing, talk about writing theory, uh, comics history, all the above. Um, and I spent six months in Australia and I loved it and planned to go back and didn't. So Holland, well done on, uh, not leaving. <laughs> it turns out if you, if you got like cow and sheep enough to get a PhD in it, that does kind of put you on the, um, like highly valued jobs list for immigration yeah. as it turns out. <laughs> well, way, uh, way back, actually- way back in the day, I was a veterinary nurse. And at the time I was traveling, I was doing volunteer work. I also have a degree in marine biology. So I was uh, oh, wow. volunteering volunteering at zoos and aquariums as I traveled around. So I worked oh, at the Perth, Perth Zoo and the Melbourne Zoo, the Sydney Zoo, Auckland Zoo. It was really Dang. nice. It was amazing. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, I don't blame you. It's it's pretty great. It's a pretty great, yeah. pretty great down under. No, that sounds like, that sounds like a really cool, like, background though, too. I'm just more like a, more not like a vet, more just like a dietitian for cows with a lot of math involved. But it's really <laughs> That's what I do on holiday, though. I go to zoos. I didn't get to the Brisbane Zoo last week because I was apartment hunting, driving all over town, trying to find apartments. But I'm looking forward to being short train ride from the Steve Irwin Zoo once I move up there. Nice. That's awesome. So how did you get involved in Discworld? Uh, my dad is a voracious reader ever since I was a kid. He would uh, travel a lot. He used to pick up book one of a series on a flight out to a meeting. And then he would pick up book two on the way back because he'd already consumed the first one. So we moved from where I grew up in Kentucky to California, and there were 70 plus boxes of paperback books that went with us. Um, He was getting rid of some of his boxes uh, recently, which made me super sad, but he sent me two dozen of those boxes. Oh, well. Um, And uh, so I was like, don't donate, at least let me see them first (laughs) before you get rid of them. It was like my freaking childhood. So um, 
he sent them back out. But uh, it was the late 80s. I had to I had to look it up. So it was like the late 80s. And I started with Color of Magic and I read through to Sorcery. And then at that point, we had moved to California. Uh, I just graduated high school. And so it went on the back burner for a while. But I have since then read Guard Guards, uh, Guard, Guards, Guards and um, Reaper Man and a few others down the line. But my my favorite for some reason that sticks to me, it was philosophically poignant at the time, the small gods. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It just, it blew my mind. And um, I was like, oh, I haven't read Terry Pratchett in a while. I should pick up one of these books. So I picked up this book. And at the time I was going through a lot of, uh, a lot of spiritual, spiritual uh, awakening and questioning and thoughts. And uh, he did what he normally does and t- turns my mind on its side with humor. Uh, and as I as I mentioned before, we are discussing one of the later books in the series, Making Money, which uh, both the the book that came before it, Going Postal, and now this one, feel like a different form that Terry's experimenting with. Um, you know, there's chapters, for example, and sort of those like a Victorian, I guess, or what would you describe those those chapter headers, like the in which things. It feels of a certain subset of British literature from like mid-century where it's like, Mm -hmm. where it's like aping on like stuff that would generally be like aimed at like either children or or like Dickensian things of like, Mm. you know, summarizing the entire chapter. It came afterwards, but it feels very Lemony Snicket. Mm. Or no, no, Lemony Snicket Mm. came out before these books. I'm... (laughs) I have no, I have no recollection. I yeah. was slightly too old. Yeah, yeah it's like. But it does definitely feel Dickensian. Yeah. Uh, it good. also, it also to me feels a little bit like, um, almost like it's like news headings. Like it's mm-hmm. giving the like the like teaser on the on the clickbait, and then <laughs> and then you read the chapter. It's Victorian clickbait. That's exactly what it is. <laughs> Yeah, like when things were published by by the chapter, so mm. you had to really catch people. It's a precursor to fanfic summaries. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or the precursor to me uh, last time on. Yeah. Right? <laughs> okay. Well, uh Justin, do you want to give us a quick plot summary? Yes. Um this is not this is not a guards book, but I am still doing the summary because uh I frankly I sh- <laughs> I, I do like the moist books like that like I think, you know, they're probably my they are my wheelhouse because crime is crime is more important than crime fighting. And let's be real, Moist <laughs> gives off a little bit of chaotic bi energy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Be, be gay, do crimes energy for sure. And speaking of Moist von Litvik, he's getting bored. The post office is running swimmingly. Adorable is off on a job for the Golem Trust, and he's starting to get a uh, frisky in a criminal way. Fedinari, seeing this, tries to convince Moist to take on the role of Chairman of the Royal Bank and Master of the Royal Mint, as Veninari wants to have a more stable economy for the undertaking, whatever that is. Moist refuses the job, but after a meeting with Topsy Lavish, the current chair, she dies and leaves Moist with the care of the new chairman, Mr. Fusspot, her dog who now controls a majority share of the bank. To make matters worse, Topsy has taken out a contract with the Assassin's Guild to kill Moist if the dog meets an unfortunate end. So now Moist is the deputy chairman of the bank, and he finds out that minting coins happens at a loss, the bank is run on archaic standards, and the chief cashier Malvolio Bent has some dark secret in his past. 
Moist decides that as stamps are now being used mostly instead of coins, to move Ankh-Morpork pork to paper money standard of fiat currency. Moist meets large resistance both from the bank and the lavishes who seek to wrest the bank back so they can use it for their own greedy desires. Chief among the lavishes is Cosmo, who is a veterinary fanboy, question mark, who wants to be veterinary. Moist's efforts include getting his stamp printers to set up a printing press, breaking a master forger out of prison, and offering incentives to have people take loans and set up accounts at the bank. Harry King sees Moist for what he's doing and heavily invests. Meanwhile, Adorabella has found some ancient golems from the city of Um, not uh, um, I thought this was Omnian for like half the book, and I was yeah. like, I, because I was listening on audiobook, and I thought Omnian, mm-hmm. and then I and then I was looking, I had to check a character spelling, and I was like, oh, and then I felt a, like very silly, and then suddenly this book made a lot more sense. Yeah, I think it's supposed to be a play on Ur. Yes. Um, yeah. And after a trip to Unseen University and some not quite necromancy, finds these are four golden golems. This turns out to be a translation error, and it turns out that 4,000 golems enter the city when they arrive. Moist deduces that the secret to controlling these items is wearing a golden suit, like his, which mimics the old priests of Um. And Moist orders the golems to bury themselves out of the city, outside the city, to prevent anyone from using the golems as an army. However, Moist dealings are complicated by being arrested because, in fact, all of the gold in the bank's vaults are down. During the public inquiry, Moist reveals his past as a criminal and card artist, shooting down Cosmo's plan to humiliate him. And one of the other lavishes ends up revealing that the lavishes embezzled all the gold ages ago. Cosmo, driven to madness by a poorly made copy of Edinari's ring, will... I will explain that, I guess, at some point. Uh, don't worry about it, really. Uh, tries to say that he is the real veterinary, but Moist is able to defuse the situation by blowing up Cosmo's hand. As things wind down, veterinary starts to consider when Moist might get bored again and the advancing age of Ankh Morpork's chief tax collector. <laughs> There's a lot going on in this book. You know, I, I was thinking that, and it's like, it's actually like, it's a pretty straightforward book in like terms of like thrust. There aren't there aren't any like weird like they, everything's threaded together, but there's like not there's not any weird like long side bins is where I remember like there are some books where it's like I have to devote like three paragraphs to explaining one thing that is in essence like not that important, but will be in the end. <laughs> mm-hmm. So before we dive in, is there anything that we need to clear up or uh, discuss to pre-discuss? No, I just I'm coming into this book because I I think Small Gods. I have to look at the list again to see if I've read anything since Small Gods. So it's been a while. So you oh, haven't so, read Going Postal, so you don't know who Moist no. Lundberg is. <laughs> no, so, oh, so, wild. This is, so I thought this might That's be good. I thought about it and I was like, apparently there's another one, and I was like, you know what? No, I'm just going to come into this just as this. Huh, and cool. knowing knowing Discworld, but not knowing the most recent stuff and see if that, you know, counterpoints some of your expertise. Um, but so I came in not knowing almost anything. And I thought I was very comfortable the whole time, as comfortable as one can be when your head's being spun around by Terry Pratchett. <laughs> but like, there were definitely some things where, you know, you read things and you have to be like, I don't know what that is yet. 
I'm going to wait for context clues. And then you keep reading. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure that there were things in there that maybe on a reread or re-listen, because I listened on audiobook and it was fantastic. Oh, the yeah. audiobook for this is fantastic. Yeah. That reader is mind blowing. I listened to a lot of audiobooks and that guy mm -hmm. is great. Yeah. The, was it the, yeah. the Stephen Briggs? Mm -hmm. Is that who it is? I'll have to look. Yeah. I don't catch yeah. his name, but oh my gosh. When you get two uh, characters who kind of sound alike, but but you can definitely tell the difference between what was his name Crispin yeah Chris mm -hmm. uh huh and Cosmo they're mm -hmm. not that far off but somehow he manages to still make them extremely mm -hmm. distinct mm. it it was it was fantastic so um I'll definitely listen to it again but there's probably some things on a reread that I realized like oh I never got a context clue for that okay, the Going Postal audiobook is also really excellent um I've also listened to these way more on audio than I've read them. They're kind of my comfort audiobooks. Nice. Or just um how I bribe myself to do chores or whatever. <laughs> I just put an audiobook in something or 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 like long plane flights or road trips or whatever. Right, and right. Stephen Briggs is consistently stellar. A note to readers on that point, uh or listeners, uh if you like the Stephen Briggs ones, you may want to download them and save them somewhere safe because uh the Discworld folks are re-recording all of the books this year um with some interesting takes like they have a consistent death actor for the entire thing are these like full audio cast they're not full audio casts uh but like okay. they have a different main narrator for each like series in the Discworld series so they have huh. one narrator for guards and they have one narrator for the witches uh who i mean all of huh. all of the ones that they've gotten so far i really like and actually the person for moist von Lippig uh is the one who played him for the going postal sky adaptation oh, beautiful um, yeah. i love it but nice. there are also people who are huge fans myself among them of stephen briggs uh, uh, uh in no small part from my perspective because his we free men are uh iconic Mm. Mm. Rich, yeah. you need to read the Tiffany Aching books. <laughs> uh, you know what? It, they've been recommended to me on multiple occasions, but I just yeah. have not gotten to them yet. Um, on a similar note, um, I downloaded a while ago uh, the Terry Pratchett, the BBC radio drama collections. Mm. I'm assuming oh, nice. you guys have, they're on Audible and they got released. Um, they are, is it four of them? Five of them? Something it's like quite that, a yeah. few stories. It's uh, Mort. Uh, Weird Sisters, Guards, Guards, Eric, Small Gods, Night Watch, and, and Night Watch. And there's some kind of bonus little mini story there that I wasn't that familiar with. But um, I thought they were all really good. Good if to know. If you're familiar with uh, the Hercule Poirot B BBC, mm -hmm. um, the guy who played Peter Jackson, is there, is Peter Jackson? Am I getting him confused with some other guy? Uh, Suchet? No, no, not I David know. Suchet. No, the guy who played um the guy who plays um uh oh my gosh. Why I oh my gosh, I only listen to Poirot like a million times a day and for mm -hmm. some reason Jap. The guy who plays Jap. Um the police uh the the detective that he works with mm -hmm. uh all the time. That guy who plays Jap does the voice of um the head of the guards. Oh okay. and he's and he's fantastic. Oh nice. He's fantastic. Mm -hmm. So I, I recommend those. Those were pretty good. Um, and there was a couple in there that I had not listened to yet. I hadn't heard Eric. Uh, and I don't think I'd heard Nightwatch. Uh, but The Small Gods is actually really, really good. So um, if we're talking audio books. Yeah. But anyway, I may have, got, I may have gotten it. <laughs> That's and okay. To, to, it's not the first or last time that'll happen. 
I talk a lot. That's why I'm a podcaster. <laughs> and I've actually, I've actually basically switched to uh, consuming these in audiobook at this point. Yeah. Because because the Stephen Briggs audiobooks are yeah. so yeah. good. He he's amazing. He has like he has like eight voices that he has, but he but uh, like his real gift is he's got like eight voices, but he can like tweak each one enough that they are identifiable, which I think is a fit. He's got a very like he's got a very recognizable voice, but like being able to like identify that in the characters is like he's very good at that, and that's Something that's not all audio narrators are very, are particularly good. Oh at. no, there's some <laughs> and his veterinary is his veterinary is just absolutely the gold standard <sighs> for for veterinary for me. He's just yeah. in this book like some of when veterinary is just absolutely reading people, like he just gets it so perfect with the tone. Yeah. Uh, I also appreciate all the accents that he puts in. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's really. I really enjoy that. Is Mac McFeagle, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> the way he says, Cribbins. Cribbins. I can't imitate it well, but it's perfect. Oh, whaley, whaley, whaley. <laughs> yes. Justin, uh, Justin, as our resident newbie, um, although I guess we have two this this time, uh, what were your uh, impressions? So I had a real blast with this one. I Overall, I, I think it's, like especially compared to like i mean we just came off a tiffany book and like my my impression of tiffany books is that they are like relatively even for discworld very dark uh (laughs) Mm -hmm. like i i mean these coming out like months apart would probably be less it's like these this is light and breezy and i mean it's it's a delightful read i like i think this is the first book I've had in a while where there's like a little bit of nitpicks that I've got, but overall, like I, like I really enjoyed it. It's like the spine of the book is fantastic and moist is like for just a second outing is such a completely realized character and delightful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Colin, what are your thoughts? I mean, yeah, it's been one of my favorites since it came out. I really love uh, someone who's, kind of socially awkward sometimes and puts a lot of effort into it. Being someone who's just seeing Moist and Vetinari play off against each other, two people who are absolutely really two different versions of, I guess, like the guile hero or the very charismatic character play off against each other like that. I really love the dynamic. And especially the first time I read it, you know, I was in high school, I didn't know a ton. Now I accidentally my way into an ag business minor because of sort of a fake it till you make it thing with econ class in college. So I had to learn about all this stuff for my math requirements in college. So that added depth. And now, especially since some of what I do is economic modeling, just I keep picking up little Easter eggs and stuff on all the rereads. And it's just got such high reread value. I think of the Discworld books that I've listened to the most on audio, it's these two. It's constantly staggering to me just how much Terry knew. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, Al, the whole time I was listening to this book, I was like, man, I hope somebody knows something about economics that's on this podcast. <laughs> because I'm listening to this whole thing and I was like, oh my gosh, that makes so much sense. <laughs> in the in the the absurdity shouldn't make sense view of Terry Pratchett. You know? Like the whole thing with the stamps. And I was like, mm-hmm. oh, oh. And how that would lead to paper money. I was like, this is genius. <laughs> It's a genius bit of dot connection. So when we did, mm-hmm. when we did our going postal episode, 
I just screamed to the <laughs> mic, Moist Watt Living, you've created a fiat currency. You've done yes. it. And, I, and then I and, saw and the and next Anna, book. Yeah. And Anna <laughs> and, and I were like, hmm, hmm, hmm. I guess my my feeling about this book, because I've read it a few times, including like when it first came out, and like I like all of the parts. I'm not sure I like the whole book. Mm. Um, there are there are a lot of things that have stuck with me ever since I read them, but their their statements, their quotes, their set pieces, but the whole book just sort of feels jumbled together to me. Um, you know, it definitely and, feels like there's a lot going on. Like there's a lot going on in a lot of different places. And usually he'll hit you with a brick joke or two. You know, he'll set things up at the very beginning and then be like at the end, hey, hey, remember that? Uh, and I feel like he those don't happen in this one. Aside from Yeah, there's yeah. There's a lot of kind of things that seem like a running gag, but never quite never quite resolve. I mean, there's the clockwork one, but Yeah. Or like it's it's not that they don't resolve. It's like that they don't end up kind of tying in in the way that you would expect. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I guess the Malvolio, the, the Malvolio through line, I guess could broadly speaking be that, but it's not as good as some of the other ones. I don't know. There's one thing that like there's a couple things. Yeah, he does leave on the table that you expect to tie up. Like the bit with Cribbins and Bernice Hauser. Like there seems like there was backstory there that was cut like he knew her at some point and it never seemed followed up on and I remember being like that has always puzzled me and I don't know if there was just something left on the cutting room floor but yeah there's apropos given what happens with Ben there's a lot of balls being juggled in the air (laughs) um it feels like maybe not all of them were caught at the end the the forger slash in artist is another uh that's another that's another one that kind of like is the is the running gag and then it just sort of drops. Yeah. Um that it's it's wrapped up like that veterinary adopts him as the new, you know, and a, a new and improved Leonard of Quirm, I guess or something. But it's not really you know, it's not a s- super satisfying conclusion. For my part, um I definitely enjoyed this more than I did the last time I read it, which I think actually was on release day. I think this was the first one that I like picked up and read on release day. At that point, I didn't really vibe with a lot of the economic stuff, but, you know, sitting, you know, many years later and older, um, I, I really enjoyed it this time other than, you know, a few, a few nitpicks where it could be like, you know, a little bit tighter overall, but that's, I mean, this is, this is like comparing, you know, comparing to like the absolute top of the top mm-hmm. Discworld books. I'd also forgotten just how much veterinary talks in this book, like compared to, I think he says more lines in this book than any other book combined, including Jingo, which, you know, it's, it's a turn in the character that's interesting to me. And I think it really supports the the fan theories out there that that Nari was cultivating Moist as his eventual replacement. Interesting. I I can yeah, see that. That I can see that too. I don't think it's ever explicit. Yeah. Okay. But I mean, the part that the the part where he realizes that Moist is a is a 
I mean, the the book is about Moist being a like as somebody who is constantly unsatisfied, um, which I mean ADHD king. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> Gotta keep chasing that dopamine. Yeah, and and the fact he's like, well, he's gonna be tired of this in like a year when he figures it out. Um, <laughs> what about taxes? Uh, yeah, I think their dynamic is just really, really fun. <laughs> I actually enjoy it more than the veterinarian vines dynamic. Yes, absolutely. Like they're both they're both they're both good, but this is more fun, and it's just very. I don't necessarily know if veterinary is grooming moist as a successor. I mean, I've, I've heard the fan theory, but more, I think veterinary enjoys that back and forth between him and moist. And certainly moist does because the whole book, he's sort of trying to push and push and see what he can get away with. Mm-hmm. And veterinary then kind of has to like come down a bit. Like this is not just for fun and games here. There are actually huge things here at stake. You're being a little familiar here. Going to need you to shut that down. But Moist still just like, okay, steps back a bit and then keeps going right back at it bigger and faster. Mm-hmm. And I think they, they both seem to really enjoy that yeah. dynamic more than veterinary. I think like his dynamic vines, I don't think is as ping ponging back and forth. I don't think it's as fun for veterinary. Mm-hmm. I, I think, I feel like Moist kind of recognizes in veterinary in some ways, a fellow con man, right? Like he recognizes all of the ways that veterinary manipulates people and he doesn't get annoyed by it is the thing that he sees it and is like, aha, aha, someone like me. Whereas Vimes, I think, sees it and then is like, fuck off, veterinary. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Moist, Moist sees veterinary beating him over the head with carrot and is like, game respect game. <laughs> right, mm-hmm. right. It's, I think it's, I, I part of it is that Vimes does not play games. Mm-hmm. Moist thinks everything is a game on some level. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And because of that, it, it's when Moist when Moist is confronted with anything Veterinari does, it is a new challenge with the threat of like the fail condition being the gallows. Mm-hmm. At least in his head. I honestly don't think like Veterinari would ever kill Moist. Yeah, and I think that that's fairly clear in this one, actually, when when Drumnaught is like, wait, 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 you didn't threaten him? And Veterinary's like, why would I do that, honestly? <laughs> and part of it is Veterinary realizes getting people to turn the screws inside their own head is a lot more effective, and it's cer- certainly labor-saving, but it's you barely have to do anything. He knows that all he has to do is suggest a couple things, and he'll get moist full-on anxiety brain about stuff. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, definitely do not read the tax policy, Moist. <laughs> Don't read it. Don't think about all the loopholes there that you that a clever mind could get away with. Certainly, no. <laughs> Any other broad thoughts before we talk about themes? Uh, I... As you mentioned earlier, I, I do think it's ironic that it came out in 2007, given what happened in 2008, but... Um... Oh my god, yeah, and and like, you know, reading through all the stuff with like the fiat currency and like, you know, the the currency that's backed by backed by the city and stuff like that as, you know, we have a potential debt ceiling crisis coming up is just like, Ugh. boy, that's that's and, still timely. Mm-hmm. And all the shell games of money. Really, I'm honestly surprised there haven't been more Discworld references on leverage mm-hmm. because yeah. it feels like it, like even just as like one of the fake names Hardison would use or something like that because really 
you, you can't tell me that Hardison would not be a huge Discworld fan. Yeah, you straight up cannot tell me that he did not he did not figure out some way to like he's got doesn't have a bunch of signed conditions or something like that. I think I could see him assigning Elliot the name Carrot. Uh huh. <laughs> right. I think that would be uh, definitely. I think, and it would be an it would be an affectionate thing because I'm all about the OT three. But at the same time, but like, it, it would totally be affectionate mocking. I think I think Elliot would like Vimes though. Yeah. Well, speaking as a as a currently uh, a human nurse, formerly veterinary nurse, uh, Cosmo's whole thing with that finger was like <laughs> really hard for me to be reading. Uh, I, I, I've, been in, I've been in many many a sepsis code, and, and that man should be super dead. I'm just saying. Yeah. Like. Yeah. And the fact that it's on the hand, I mean, no one listening, just never Google image search degloving, please, for the love of God, don't. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. But that's where no, I thought yeah. it was going to go. I'm like, I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Take it out in the sun, cauterize that wound, take yeah. that finger off. But that bacteria is still in there. Yeah. It's in there. It's in there. Yeah. The whole arm's going to need to come off. And apparently, Sigium is an, a Star Wars EU reference. Oh, oh my god. god. It, oh, <laughs> fuck this. Oh, fuck oh. this. Oh. <laughs> wow. Oh, Terry. It's like a reference to like stick stick pencil or something, but wow. Wow. I just. Okay. <sighs> oh, <laughs> wow. fuck me. Wow. I just like. I was like, I'm, I'm, I know what this is. And oh. My, I'm, I'm currently watching uh, Clone Wars and Rebels uh, introducing my, my seven and nine year old to the Star Wars universe. So I've been kind of buried in Star Wars. So that's like, seriously. (laughs) It's what they make cloaking devices out of. Fuck me. Uh, Wow. Oh my God. Uh, Wow. Uh, Deep cut there. I I, I hate it. I hate it. (laughs) And that's the show, folks. Um. The thing, the finger through line reminded me of the of the finger through line in Shape of Water. If anybody's seen that, oh, oh, god, yeah, uh, yeah, shoot, I, I have seen that. I had to, yeah, having to think back though. Yeah, the the main bad guy has a finger amputated and then sewn back on, and it does not take. Oh, oh, that's oh right. yeah, yeah, oh, that's right. yeah. Now that you brought that up, yeah, yeah, and just that, that's, this conversation. That same, that same, like you know, ongoing thread of like visceral horror. <laughs> oh, mm-hmm. just so hard. I was just like, okay, to, every time <laughs> getting off of this, <laughs> but I do want to talk about Cosmo some more, um, just because it kind of, I feel like the villain who wants to take over Veterinary's role uh, trope is kind of a Discworld established trope now, uh, and it, I feel like it's almost lampshaded in this book. Yeah. Yeah. With the I thought it was I thought it was so subtle though. <laughs> with the with the like um god like the Raiders of the Lost Ark warehouse of veterinary impersonators. <laughs> oh, it's like, oh it's like god, the Jesus yes. or Napoleon Bonaparte wing yeah. of the uh, of the mental hospital, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. We've we've gone from like having like Charlie the impersonator that he keeps for stuff where he doesn't want to show up to mm-hmm. like straight on Yeah. Yeah, amazing. I love the I loved the uh, the replica of a rumor (laughs) that made me very happy. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. That 
yeah, the sword that everybody knows he has that he definitely doesn't have. <laughs> yeah, but has enough story about it that you can put, you can make a replica of a thing that definitely does not exist. Mm-hmm. I think it's nice contrast with um, Thud. And we saw that this, I think someone else put in the notes, Doc, that the axe was still on the table there. Mm-hmm. That, that, that whole like grandfather's, you know, axe of my grandfather and everything from Fifth Elephant. So that the axe that's on the table is actually from uh, Feet of Clay. Oh, right. There we go. <laughs> uh, which, Rich, you also need to read because it will have a moment where you are throwing pens at Terry. <laughs> I don't want to throw pens at Terry. I want to throw pens at you. Yeah, that's fair. Um, but yeah, going back to some of the main themes, I guess the main theme is the gold standard is bad. I have a, I have a hypothesis that um, that economics and money is dark narrativium. Mm. <laughs> Ooh, I buy it. Nice. <laughs> I like it. Yep. Yeah. I like that. The that that the that money and the um uh, and and economic forces are the dark narrative force of the universe mm. which is the which is how the glooper mm. works mm-hmm. That's a good point. i like it i like it uh oh so the I mean, the glooper acts directly on the fourth wall yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> the fourth wall machine yeah nice yeah igor's just got just not i mean igor's in general they have some pretty good fourth wall awareness but it was very shining in that bit. yeah I, I agree with you though i think it i mean it really has to i mean just the whole speech about the potato you know it's <laughs> yeah just, it just it seems pretty obvious that there was definitely some capitalism questions in there or that it's all kind of made up yeah mm-hmm. yeah you know and and it kind of is you know i mean i'm not an economist so please jump in and smack me around but like it's kind of it's kind of we trust that there's gold at Fort Knox. Well, it's but, I mean, I'm not an economist, but I took basically stats and econ classes for all my my math, and so now I do some I do econ stuff now to an extent. But it reminds me of when I had to take the class in like stock markets and like futures trading and everything, and the idea that you know futures trading where you can buy and sell and speculate on all this stuff as long as you're not the one holding the bag at the delivery date. So it's just abstract right. levels and layers of like, we're all just kind of trading these things around that don't actually exist. And we don't actually want them when they actually do exist. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a reference that's missing in this book from earlier books. There's no reference to the pork futures warehouse. Oh, geez. I was hoping there was going to be, but you're right. Huh. There's missed opportunity there. Yeah. It's the other thing that I was thinking about though, is like the, the, int- the turn from like using stamps as functionally fiat currency to using the golem backed currency is going from a promissory note for work, which is, you know, delivery of a, of a package or a letter to basically promising not to use the golems. As far as I can tell. I mean, so the way you could, you could, you could, you could say it is that, I mean, this, this is, um, this is like just just like like look put put a like hammer and sickle on your screen as you look at this that the <laughs> currency is instead being backed upon the labor potential of the golems. Hmm. It would be like it would be like backing your currency in uranium. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's my that's my that's my like my theory of how this works. Um so Aaron, were you saying that the golems are it's basically like a gold extortion standard? 
or or something because i mean the thing that they talk about which is a real like economic theory uh is like if you dilute the 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 value of work past a certain point uh you know because the golems could theoretically do they have like four thousand or something they could theoretically do all of the manual labor in the city easily and completely and it would basically just it would wreck the currency entire because there would be no reason to pay other people wages right so then you get into a place of not having like again i'm not an economist but like there'd be no there would be no like social strata mm-hmm. right like there'd be enough there'd be nothing to determine who is poor who is rich who gets something and who doesn't get something mm-hmm. if there's literally no money and all the work is being done yeah and there's no money there's no money to spend anymore it would completely upend everything that's happening it would have to be a completely non-commerce related yeah and and I, I mean the I I, the ideal of course is fully automated luxury communism yes but yeah um, that's what i'm saying yeah that's like I don't. I don't see any more pork going for that. No. Well, yeah. the thing is, like, I think if we'd had another twenty years of books, we might have gotten there, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The yeah. idea. The, the the that whole platinum trillion dollar coin, definitely a moist idea. Yeah. Uh, but then also, I would have loved to. I've said this like three times now. I would have loved to see Terry taking on cryptocurrency. Oh God! Yeah. <laughs> Dibbler would have come up with it. Oh, Dibbler absolutely would have come up with and it, I, and somebody else would have <laughs> run with it. And I mean, it's it, the the golems are. I mean, to to get a little theorist here, um, the golems are here be, like like because I and mean, golems can't do like skilled labor. Like a golem can't be a doctor, as far as we know, or at least in their present state. But yeah. If we'd given it 20 years, maybe we were ready for a golem-based labor economy because, I mean, if you look at Marx, you need to industrialize the economy before you are ready for socialism. I think if we had gotten, I know that like one of the, you know, the, the raising taxes thing hinted at in the, um, at the end of the book never wound up happening. But I think if we had gotten that or some, maybe like a fourth moist book or something like that, we might have seen more of that. It, it's, a, it's a bummer that that wasn't able to happen. But I think it would have been neat to see where he would have gone. It's an interesting yeah. parallel to the device in um, in Thud, mm-hmm. which is this like thing that can just move perpetually. You know, it's it's a free energy machine functionally. Yeah, Moist, I think, incredibly benefits from the fact that he comes in so late in in Discworld mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. there's all these yeah. pre-established ideas of Ankh- of Inkmore Pork. And like, and how the city works, and like, you couldn't drop Moist von Litwig before you had like three or four uh, Vimes books that give the city all its flavor and its structure and establish Vetinari. But at the same time, mm-hmm. the fact mm-hmm. that we're only getting this many Moist books, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we really the, also needed the truth and the Ankmore press yes. because he relies so much. Mm-hmm. on the press with his with his schemes and managing the court of public opinion. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I I just realized something that was foreshadowing. Um remember the goldish chain? No, remind me. The chain that looks like okay. gold. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so when, when Moist is being, you know, potentially offered the, you know, the head of the guilds, um, 
he you know it would come with a goldish chain it looks like gold but it's not actually oh. gold um and i feel like that's that's actually decent foreshadowing for what was in the vault <laughs> or just the fact that um less gold the the gold the dollar coins were described as being less gold than seawater mm-hmm. yeah like all all of that is pointing toward like what's actually in the vault i always love it when terry um you know takes a crack at like corruption and and you know old money and the rich and he was in full form in this one with the lavishes mm-hmm. that you know we, we've got cosmo who's kind of his own his own creature um but the the rest of the lavishes and the fact that they like you know they they embezzled all the gold and they still don't see what was wrong with it it's fine it was it's it's still here it's just all in our jewelry boxes and we also sold it it's fine yeah. don't worry about it I think the other, you know, pinging off of that, the other, the other theme that we really see here is uh, the difference between a con man and a respectable businessman is the amount of money they have in the bank. Because, mm-hmm. you know, a, a chunk of lead covered in gold is functionally exactly what Moist would do, but they're claiming they have 10 tons of it. Pucci said at the end, again, they just failed to see how that's a problem. For a bit at the end during the courtroom, it's like that... um. Like that, he just tweeted it out. Meme. Yeah. Like she, she doesn't, she doesn't see what's wrong with it because, of course, the rules don't apply to them. They've got the money. Why shouldn't they be able to get away with whatever they want? She literally does not seem to see the issue with it, and why everyone's so fussed about everything. And it was a very funny way to actually end that, just to have her blurted out because we've seen her being benignly oblivious about other stuff with her brother throughout the book, but. You said they really just don't see how that's a problem. Of course, it's theirs. Why can't they do whatever they want with it? Why is this a point of discussion? In some ways, it's even more satisfying than if, like, Moist or Veterinary had some sort of master plan to get them to reveal it. It's just like, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, it's it's the... it's I take it back to a place of leverage. It's the... We can't have criminals be as stupid as they are in real life because people would say that's unrealistic. <laughs> except it works. Be- except it works in Terry Pratchett because there's that verisimilitude, and you, you obviously you have a lot more space in 400 pages of book than you do in 44 minutes of television. And I worked at a legal office for like a year in college, and yeah, people sometimes are just that stupid. Like, nah, it's not a legal defense. <laughs> I have learned that from following Ken White on Twitter as well. <laughs> yeah. Uh, other themes and tropes we want to pick up before we move on to, to deeper content again? There are a number of pieces of media that I've consumed that have had the gag of the dog as the majority shareholder. And I love it every time. I am here for this. <laughs> give me the... Give me the yeah. majority shareholder dog or horse or whatever, like... I love it. As I was like listening to this book, I was visiting with a friend who was in town who is dog sitting this dog, which is, I mean, basically was Mr. Fusspaw. Was like <laughs> this like tiny yappy dog that was like, you know, like was hyperactive, would like hump various things. And it was just like, <laughs> like, and so it was just like. I, I I like I was like you know listening to the book and I was like a quarter of the way into it I visited this friend and this dog just became Mr. Fusspot whenever I was picturing it <laughs> and I was just like 
All right. So um, let's talk a little bit about buttons, which are things that we that where Terry steps back for a minute and slaps us in the face with reality. For example, uh, as I mentioned a couple minutes ago, uh, Moist notes that it's funny that a brigand for a father was something to keep quiet about, but a slave taking a pirate for a great, great, great grandfather was something to boast of over the port. Yeah, you know that idea that of old money versus new, which we also, I guess, see it in the in the Harry King uh, buy-in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rich, you probably missed the book where Harry King comes into this. I mean, I only saw Harry King as he was in this book, and it was not. It was a very not subtle reference to the old, you know, concepts of mafia families owning garbage companies in Jersey and yeah. New York. I mean, it yeah. was very mm-hmm. clearly what that was, yeah. but. Um, yeah, but I hadn't. This is the only time I've seen him. He's known as the King of the Golden River, uh, and basically, <laughs> right. yeah, they describe that in this in yeah. here. Enough. I it was very clear who this person was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. I was like, I don't know who this guy is, but either he's been in another book or he was planning on coming back in a future book mm-hmm. because there's a lot going on. Yeah, I think we first see him fully fleshed out in the truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think you know. I I don't think that we would ever get a book uh or we would, would have ever gotten a book that was about him but I I like him as one of the background characters like Dibbler. Yeah, he's he's new money. Yeah. yeah. And I find it interesting that he is one of two people in this book uh, that is not either that is not veterinarian as associates that see moist for what he is and they don't and specifically, they don't, like, think less of him for it. I'm between Topsy and Harry King. They both pretty much immediately clock what Moist is. Like, they, they realize that he is a con artist. At best, he is a rogue, a scallywag, if you will. At worst, he's a, at worst, he's a crook. And both of them decide to, like, pretty much immediately trust him. Which is yeah. so wild, and I and I, it's gonna be like I I would be interested to know how much money of Harry King's goes into the undertaking. <laughs> sounds like, sounds like kind of almost like um no bid like he's in some sort of no bid contract or something uh, to build sewage treatment plants, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. And also, all the people who've got to cart away all the spoil from the roadworks and all the mm-hmm. construction. He's trying to set himself up good with the people who will be deciding who gets the contracts and everything. <laughs> he's sort of he's sort of like Dibbler if Dibbler was actually smart, right? Mm-hmm. They're they're not entirely dissimilar, but you know, King is pretty pretty savvy. Um, I, I think the big difference between Harry King and Dibbler is that Dibbler is trying is trying to get rich, like is trying to get mm-hmm. rich quick. But Harry King is somebody who understand. I think understands the city, and yeah, just and doesn't care about getting rich quick. But no, he's got the long. But game. yeah, he's got the long yeah. game, and he knows that doing stuff that nobody else is willing to do is far more profitable than taking advantage of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nice. he's got big Brian Blessed energy. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, I can't unsee that. That's great. <laughs> like, there are two people who could play, like, Harry King. Brian Blessed or James Gandolfini? 
<laughs> well, yeah, obviously. Uh. <laughs> Brian Blessed would be such an interesting take on him, though. Oh my god. Him, him or, or Red Cully. I still feel like Red Cully. Brian Blessed's voice is in my head whenever he shows up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, another one that I that I really liked was uh, food gets you through times of no gold, but then gold gets you through times of no food. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and and one of and I've got another one that ties very closely into that. Um, but what's worth more than gold? Practically everything. You, for example, gold is heavy. Your yeah. weight in gold is not very much gold at all. Aren't you worth more than that? Mm-hmm. That's a fantastic mm-hmm. line. Yeah, I, mm-hmm. yeah. One thing that sort of that I I really like that that rings true for a lot of this is that go, like you know it's never like it's said a couple times but gold is useless mm-hmm. is that I mean, like yeah. uh, there are like in the modern day there are certain industrial applications for it but it is a it is a metal that we have no use for and that you know it was it's been given value it's it, soft because it's shiny it's soft it's pretty yeah, it doesn't it doesn't evaporate. It, it doesn't tarnish. Yeah. yeah. Which is about the yeah. only thing it's got going for it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's got, it's also easier to work because it's pretty ductile. Mm-hmm. So from a, from a putting it in different form shape, it's pretty useful. But yeah, from a practicality standpoint. Yeah. And it's also easy to slowly uh, mix with other metals uh, and amalgam and amalgam and amalgam until it looks like gold, but functionally isn't. <laughs> <laughs> uh... <laughs> Gold-ish. Yeah. Yep. Another one of my favorites is a weapon you held and didn't know how to use belonged to your enemy. Which is mm-hmm. which we actually see several times in this book. Yeah. Uh, up yeah. to and including the lavish's attempts to attempts to control uh, moist. Mm-hmm. You know, because only Vetinari knows how to wield moist. <laughs> yeah. Like it. It works both literally and figuratively. Yeah. And Vetinar even calls Moist out on it, like, like you bought a blackjack, seriously. You don't even know what to do with that thing. <laughs> what are you getting in with your head? You're getting in over your head here. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it reminds me, though, of, like, all the things I, I briefly took Aikido, and one of the things that they drilled into our head repeatedly was, it's fun to pretend that you're disarming somebody with a knife, but really what you do when somebody has a knife is run. Run. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. you know, the, the, the way you tell uh, the winner of a knife fight is they die in the ambulance to the hospital as opposed to on, to the, on the street. Yep. No. That was dark. A, Sorry. I, no, no. I studied Aikido for years, and that's, that's absolutely <laughs> that's absolutely the training. There's a lot of, there's a lot of, like, you guys are hitting some really, like, major, major quotes. And the thing that always hits me with Terry Pratchett and Douglas Adams is whenever there's, it's the little ones that get me the descriptive mm-hmm. language that's being mm-hmm. used about something. So like my the Douglas Adams once punched me in the face from the very beginning was the, the starships hang in the sky exactly the way that bricks don't. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It's one of my favorites. I had to, I, it was, it was like, it's in the first like chapter. I, it's, I had to like put the book down and walk away for a while while my brain was trying to catch up with what that was. <laughs> but there was, there were little quotes. Um, the, one of the ones that I wrote down was luck comes to those who leave space for it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and there's a, there's a thing that my wife and I are teaching our kids. There's like um, uh, luck is the, the idea that luck is, is preparation combined with opportunity, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You have to participate. It doesn't just show up and you got to You got to have space for it. Right. 
So there's these little philosophical nuggets that he drops in. And sometimes it's happening in the middle of so much stuff that's going on that it's like your brain almost has to chew on it subconsciously. But one yeah. of the other ones that I think is just for some reason caught me is really funny was, um, was that I don't have the exact quote, but it was, it became so quiet in the room that the spiders in their webs in the ceiling, like uh, waved back and forth due to the oral vacuum. <laughs> right. Like, like everybody yeah. was listening so hard that they were sucking air into their ears, you know, like it's those kinds of things that, and he does that so much, at least for me, like I've read a bunch of stuff since the last time I've read a Terry Pratchett and it's just so much that happens all the time in the way he beautifully brings these concepts and ideas in, in ways that kind of sneak past your defenses and get into your subconscious. Um, that I think that if that maybe if you read it a lot, you just you're just used to it all the time. But mm-hmm. man, it it's just I just keep wanting to stop. Like even when I just started it, Aaron and I were talking about me coming on. I just started it. And he was like, hey, write down some quotes. And I was like, yeah, I'm in like the first like few lines, like the yeah. first few paragraphs. And I'm like, I can't, all I'm going to be doing is sitting here on my phone, writing <laughs> quotes down and re- um, rewinding, you know, the book. <laughs> like, my notes sheet looks like yeah. too. It's my little notes file. So I was like, you know what? I give it. I'm just going to like, I'm just going to absorb the book and take the story. And when something jumps out at me, I'm just going to write it down and be done. Cause it would just be a whole book. It would just be, we'd just be talking about Oh that. yeah. That's, that's my vibe now. It's like, yeah. I was doing that for like the first like books. And then I was like, no, nah, I'm just vibing. I'm vibing mm-hmm. too much. He's just so quotable all yeah. the time. Yeah. He had a really like Shakespearean way with words in the sense that he coins things that you wind up quoting so much. Yeah. Um, and my, former boss who just retired bless him he, he he learned like he put up with me quoting Pratchett a lot in meetings because there's so much that's applicable yeah like the point where you know you can sell the sizzle but at some point you have to produce the sausage mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. like that's that's from this book and I've quoted or just the phrase you know um hell knows heaven suspects mm-hmm. yeah. as I can tell that's he's the first one. one who came up he's the mm-hmm. first one who came up with that or just even um son of many fathers to describe Mr. Fusspot, which <laughs> Um, it's the perfect way to describe what Australians would call a bitzer because their bits are everything. Um, and I keep imagining pugs is the way the guy who draws the oatmeal draws them. But like, yeah. Son of, son of many fathers. I've used that so much to describe like animals. He, he just comes up with those turns of phrase that mm-hmm. are so unique that really stick in your brain. And, mm-hmm. and usually they're just also laugh out loud oh, yeah. funny. Like, mm-hmm. You know, I, listening to this, I would just like pause it to start cackling because they're true. <laughs> oh, yeah, because mm-hmm. it's, yeah. it's true. Right. And you're like, you're like listening to it, and you're just like, oh gosh, I've been there. I've been to that party. I I I, I worked at that job. You know, you're just like the the funny because it's true is why this is high satire and not uh, and not yeah. parody. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. Yeah. The bit where Ponder says he's been put in charge of like. <laughs> cabinet project for his sins and i'm like yeah a- academia i feel yeah that. <laughs> and then you find out that his sins is he volunteered yep which yeah, is yeah. which is the sin um yeah. my, yes. The, yes. the the big one that i got from this one was you get a wonderful view from the point of no return <laughs> oh, which is the line. which is the okay. i mean it, it's the perfect thing of i mean it's a it's an incredibly moist thing of you only realize 
how fucked up everything is and how gracefully you have put yourself into the situation until you're at the point where you can't get out of it anymore. Is it in going postal the thing about like if you're falling, might as well do a swan dive or something like that? I Oh no, I think it was in this, oh, this one. one. It was like or at least there was a version of it. It was like if you're going if you're going to be falling, make them remember how you turned it into a dive. Hmm. Yeah. And and there it was it was with amongst of several other quotes of similar concepts of like, look, man, it just you can't control what's happening. Just take control of what you can. Mm-hmm. You know? Is it just me or does maybe like between the 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 moist and veterinary that there's like this concentration of quotable energy that appears in these two books mm-hmm. yeah like, absolutely i mean yeah. it, it's i it's like that it like i think it's maybe because there isn't say as heavy and heavy an emotional core compared to like say a tiffany book which are i would say mm-hmm. rather serious books yeah these are kind of filled with yeah, quips. Yeah, these are these are where like the quips are flying and it's it's about the back and forth more. Mm-hmm. It's it's almost like it's almost like we're back in like guards guards except with a except with a like much more developed writer and d- much more developed world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and a foil for Vetinari who plays along and appreciates right. his yeah. jokes. There's there's the ba- there's the banter back and forth between them that I don't think Betnari really gets with other characters. Yeah, yeah. Or, or, or to your point, Rich, uh, a, a phrase that the a sentence that really stuck out to me that's similar to the way bricks don't uh, is uh, it would be hard to imagine an uglier building that hadn't won a major architectural award. <laughs> right. oh, yes, uh, God, I love that line. As somebody who has worked in some incredibly ugly public buildings. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, before we move on from buttons, though, Holland, did you want to talk a little bit about econ? As someone who does a lot of modeling for my job, I mean, my, my job is basically trying to recreate what we see in real world systems in a computer form. This was kind of my first exposure to it. Admittedly, you know, I kind of, it seemed like a good idea at the time, my way into my career. There wasn't really planning so much as I like this and I'm good at it and oh, this looks shiny. But it is a lot of what we do. And a lot of the back-end development that I do is what we'd call more mechanistic models, where we're trying to recreate the laws that are going on as to what animals do things or how like people make decisions about what to buy and feed to their animals. And you do get those emergent properties from the integration of the lower levels. So the way the glooper is described, and I know there's real-world analogs that we'll talk about later from the note sheet, it is pretty similar to how things work in my field and i thought it's just it's not something that tends to come up a lot in fiction so i was was excited to see it again um and yeah there's a little bit of mad science to it or a little bit of a this is crazy but it just might work to it Mm -hmm. Um, and it's it's really fun you get those cool emergent properties and you get to poke systems with the stick to see what happens rather than as Herbert said, rather than just, you know, going out and shooting a bunch of people, you can see what happens when you have the labor force just by poking numbers at it. <laughs> much much so, better. Much you know, better choice. Yes, much better. Yes. Sensitivity analysis is like poking numbers with a stick and seeing what happens. And a lot of science can be boiled down to, we're going to poke something with a stick and see what happens. <laughs> and also, I think it goes nicely into the fact that then numbers can then be misused by people 
for their own plotting and mm-hmm. purposes. And whether you're critiquing the stats in someone's paper they've submitted or pointing out that people have misquoted stats on Twitter, it is one of my own uh, personal buttons. Anna has been very happy to very nice about listening to me when I've sometimes shared some particularly egregious examples uh, of things I've seen uh, in the literature or people trying to get away with papers. Um, so yeah, and 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 making those those you know fudges in your own numbers can then have, as we see with the glooper follow-on effects, you know mm-hmm. uh, that that can can make their way across and wreck a lot of things. Gosh, there's so many numbers that you see quoted, and you like you go. So why do people assume this number? Why do people use this number? And you trace it back, and it's something from like the 1920s that people are just like well, we're just going to keep yeah. using this number and they haven't gone back and reinvestigated it or they're applying something completely out of the context it was meant for. And that I, I'm nitpicky yeah. about stats, but this is the reason why I'm nitpicky about stats. Mm-hmm. Don't get me started uh, on medicine. <laughs> I was just going to say that uh, listener listeners of BabPod um, can, can uh, listen to a recent episode where I... Uh, discuss reviewing a paper that um, Holland referred me to review. <laughs> yes, and that was that was the I, I like. I think Mingan wanted to send you flowers or something after that. After he read that, <laughs> so I owe you, I owe you one for that. That was my some cast summon bigger fish there, but also that was a very thorough takedown of some statistical flaws, and I applaud you for that. What did we call you, the Stone Cold Stat Assassin or something? Yeah. <laughs> Stone Cold uh, Hit Woman, maybe? Stone Cold Stats Hit Woman? Put that on your CD, Stone Cold Statistics Assassin. <laughs> there we go. Uh, I mean, I mean, I do I do peer review professionally, so <laughs> it's not it's not incorrect. You got it. You got to make it like Assassin or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, ha- I have one last button that's like a weird sort of joke, but um, resonated with me quite a bit. It's when Veterinary is talking about the clowns. Um, he's oh. got, uh, they are tragic, said Veterinary. And we laugh at their tragedy as we laugh at our own. The painted grin leers out at us from the darkness, mocking our insane belief in order, logic, status, the reality of reality. The mask knows that we are born on the banana skin that leads only to the open manhole cover of doom. And we and all we can hope for are the cheers of the crowd. Me logging on to Twitter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I, I mean this isn't the fir- this isn't the first time we've seen the the Fools Guild. Uh they they play a major part in in several earlier books. Uh and and then comparing this to what he feels about mimes is interesting. <laughs> Uh, and and I actually I really like this as actually tying back to Hogfather of all mm-hmm. things. Like you yeah. know this is this is another iteration of Death's speech in mm. Hogfather about how you have to you know you have to believe in you know the little uh, the you know the you know the the little lies to believe the big ones like justice and fairness and all those things. Speaking of. Slight diversion. In the eight weeks or whatever since the la- we last recorded, I watched the Hogfather special, the, the adaptation. Oh, nice. Oh, excellent. It's um, so yeah, good, it's right? Oh, hold on, you gotta tell me what that oh, is. So Hogfather oh. is, uh, what, book 19, I think? Yeah, it's basically the Discworld Christmas 
uh, book. It, it's basically um, the forces of order, like the Discworld equivalent of like the Lords of Order, if to pull a DC mm-hmm. reference on you. Basically. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, no, no, no. I was like, yeah, <laughs> like, except the Lords of Order are like evil, unthinking entities. Um, hire an assassin to that kill Santa right. Claus. That also sounds yeah. correct. Um, and and then great. death takes uh, takes Santa's role for the night. And and his that granddaughter has like to save the world. Comic to me. Um, and and you, you said, I'm sorry. You said there was a special? yeah. There was there was an adaptation yeah. that was done by I imagine Sky Sky. Yeah. I think yeah. Um, it's a it's a mini series that's like two, um, yeah. It was it, it, it's two like ninety minutes. It's about three hours. Two ninety total. minute episodes, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. So it's like a it's like a BBC Sky kind of production. Sky TV, Sky. yeah, yeah, a Sky TV, and they did it. So it's like a it's like a yeah, show it's like it's it's a it's a mm-hmm. yeah, it's yeah. like it's a mini it's a two night mini series basically. Mm-hmm. Okay, and it was oh, good. It was, it's fantastic. Yeah. yeah, excellent. It's amazing. Oh, yeah. it's the best okay. it's the best film adaptation of his work, I think. And yeah, Mr. Teatime in that is is the perfect casting. Yeah. Gosh. I legitimately watch it every year on Christmas. Mm-hmm. Same. I was gonna say, so maybe I so I should skip Christmas Carol and go straight to watch and show my kid's hog father. I mean go for it. I mean it meshes very you know, well with Muppets Christmas Carol, just and, saying. Yeah, okay. you know that's what I did for Christmas this year. And give them a sword while you're at it. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I gave them bows this year. Nice, so, you know. We got to nice. got to survive the zombie apocalypse somehow. Yep, very educational. <laughs> That's um, why we're in a ranch in the middle of nowhere now, <laughs> instead of San Diego. Um, so let's let's keep things moving yeah. forward so that we don't go all night. Um, I did want to highlight the infinite cabinet thing. As, oh my gosh, you know, I loved it. Delightfully, oh, delightfully yes. oh, Lovecraftian cool. or SCP. Oh, yeah. it, it felt like something right uh, out of con- like like just because I played it recently. Yeah. It felt like something out of control. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. I'm also thinking about renaming my Alexa guy. Hex. <laughs> <laughs> you should do it. You should do it. Mm-hmm. Oh, Let's talk it- about post postmortem communications, please. <laughs> it might be my favorite dub yeah. bit for this book i'm i'm legitimately tempted like next time i play a necromancer sort of character in any sort of game to have them be a professor of postmortem communications the, the whole bit of like we can't be necromancers because that's illegal like that's bad <laughs> that's evil okay then what are the skulls that are the black and the, the candles for well that's for like you know Magical attunement. It's not necromancy. What? What is it then? That's just for, yeah, the, vibes. for the vibes. We ha- you have to yeah. achieve them. But for, they're for all vibes. from the Bafo shop. <laughs> yeah, the Bafo yeah, shop. From the Bafo shop, except for Charlie. Well, and the, the students are all doing it for the vibes anyway, because they get to wear black and the skull ring and like, you know, pick up goth women. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> this is also the thing that I remembered most from this entire book was the whole bit on committees. <laughs> Yeah, that was the thing that stuck oh, yeah. with me from my first reading all the way through, and how Vetinari realized that he could use it as a punishment for him, <laughs> and it was cheaper. Yeah. Oh, um, I have. There's a couple of running bits that I absolutely adore in this one. Um, the first, the first being the repeated butchering of Moist's name, um, which I do recommend at some point reading. Because they're all spelled out and it's great. Mm-hmm. I love it. Um, just endless 
creative ways to completely, completely murder Moist last name. Um, and the other thing, the other bit that I love way more than I have any right to love is Mr. Fuss Potts toy. That, <laughs> <Yeah. Aww. laughs> that, you know, he, he, he finds that, that vibrator and that is his toy. <laughs> well, and, and then also moist figuring out who the werewolf is in the watch because he, because Mr. Fusspot is hitting on Angua. Right. The, the other, the other thing, like I, I both love how objectively funny it is that we've got this and, and all the descriptions, like, like you <laughs> said, Rich, like, you know, the, the descriptions of like it, like bouncing around and like, you know, it's, it's great. It's, really great descriptive writing um but also i also love it because it reminds me of like anybody who have has pets i think there's generally that that one thing that your pet loves and you don't understand why but like that's you know that's the pet's toy now um for for me currently uh wolfie what our youngest cat has decided that there's a certain strip off of a tortilla bag that is his favorite toy. He loves it. He will drag it into bed with him and <laughs> attempt to get us to play it fetch. And it's like, nope, that's that's the cat's garbage. And it's like, nope, that's that's the that's the dog's vibrator. It's fine. <laughs> These things happen. And several times it seems to have that you know those like wind up dog things that like mm -hmm. you know sort of do the yip 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 but then they do the flip mm -hmm. yeah uh, it's got to be referencing that it reminds me my my great grandma had a little tiny toy poodle named poochie and he carried his thing was the squeaky cheeseburger that was bigger than his head and so he would try to trot around with it but it was so big relative to him that it'd kind of be dragging a little bit but him trying to trot around proudly with the cheeseburger just reminded reminded me of that I was thinking, like, as I was reading this, as listening to it anyway, I always think of, like, what would this look like? What's the difference between, like, how do you translate this into a visual thing? And there's, like, so many, the joke is that no one actually says what it is. Yeah. Right. So right. You can't, you can't do that visually. Right. Like, at, at one point, was it the reporter was saying, like, <laughs> that looks like a, and he's like, oh, good, you know what it is. And I don't have to tell you. So I'm leaving. <laughs> right? right. I'm out. Right. Right. And so like the whole joke is like, because you get leads so much to your imagination to allow mm -hmm. yourself to, to create for yourself what you think this thing looks like. Um, and and uh, instead of and instead of saying like, Mr. Fussbot was carrying around a vibrating dildo. Um, right. Like it's, you know, it's just describing like, how he's interacting with the object and how <laughs> how it's like, you know, buzzing or like flopping around. And it's just right. it it ends up like filling in that visual for you much better than if you yeah. just was, said. Wasn't it at some point he was, was it during the trial oh where the dog's vibrating backwards? Oh God, it's, He's yes. like going backwards. I would like, I want an adaptation <laughs> of this, of like this book, but just the 30 seconds where there's a quiet courtroom and a dog is like moving around with a I, I was like, I had to pull over. I was laughing so hard. <laughs> the the other the other dog toy thing that i adored is uh when when the watch is bringing mr fusspot 
too moist at the post office. Aang was just like holding the squeaky toy and just like squeaking it absentmindedly. Um, <laughs> and it's just like, you know, Angua squeaked the toy again. Yeah. And then she it's like great. comes back in and sort of sheepishly puts it down. Right, right. And it's great. I, I love I love all the, the dog toy bits. <laughs> so, and, and so I have to say like that's a, that's definitely a joke you guys got that I did not get. I'm like, oh, that's I don't have context clues for this because right. I don't, uh, I don't remember when. Gosh, it's been so long since I've read. She comes in. She comes in at Men in Arms, which she probably yeah. hasn't read yet. No, I don't. So think she's I read she's that. a werewolf. Is the is the guy? Right. But I talked about the trolls. Oh, that was another quote that I thought. <laughs> a troll has no idea what masculinity is. A troll a troll relates to masculinity the same way a pond relates to water. <laughs> <laughs> the troll's like, what do you mean you got to feel masculine? What does that mean? I don't know what that means. <laughs> so it's a bit of an aside, but the whole thing with trolls and vampires, where did they say vampires were in the guard too? Yep. At this point, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you've okay. missed quite a bit of modernization of the watch. Yeah. Well, which, I, which I actually love. And again, in retrospect, it's like, it's like you, you've watched an amazing show that you really loved and then you miss a bunch of it and you come back later into it mm-hmm. and you see like, whoa what is how you know you you dropped a you dropped a a stone in the water and the ripples came out here like you know eight Mm -hmm. eight ten books later and you see like how things have evolved it was it was really cool actually yeah and And, you know as as justin said like you needed those three or four watch books to make um a play make fertile ground in ankh park for a con artist to uh reinvent Mm -hmm. civil service yeah Um, the bit where Moist keeps like walking off with Drumnock's pencils. <laughs> also a great yeah. gag. Oh right! Oh, he doesn't have it. It's in my pocket. <laughs> you sure? He did, fir- he did that in Going Postal too. So yeah. it's a multi-book running gag. <laughs> I didn't know that, but it was pretty funny. I went, um, I went back and checked because I was curious. Of course, we we also get Igor's again because at this point, uh-huh. um, granted, the Tiffany books don't have don't have an Igor, but I'm kind you kind of expect it at this point. Um <laughs> it's clear that Terry loved writing them. And I love those Igor. I love this Igor. Yeah, and, and we all love reading them, so you know. And I so this was not the first time an Igor showed oh, up. No, they no, they are no. A, they they are a culture unto themselves and they are huh? all like this. What were they I don't remember them from I mean, it was a long the time. First ago book the first book you see an like, Igor in is Fifth Elephant, or the one before? No, it? it's um, Vampire Witches. Before Fifth Vampire Elephant. Witches book. Oh, Carpe Carpe Jogum. Jogum. Carpe yeah. yeah, yeah. They they yeah. show what? Yeah. yeah, and I mean the thing that the the thing that I absolutely love about the Igor in this one is Moist getting to be Ubervaldian. And like, mm-hmm. and like, yes. and, and like the, the, the points where like voice is like, your accent is slipping a little there. And, and yeah. like, and the, and the, the splot. Yeah. And like, yes. I like, the, it's got all like natural ingredients. <laughs> arsenic is natural. Like arsenic. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, actually, uh, that actually that, that highlights something that I wanted to talk about before, but it slipped my mind. I think that one of the most important aspects of moist and why he works so well is that he's not from Angmorpork. Mm-hmm. that mm. um 
you know, I think that that's one of the things that really makes him you know, work so well is that he doesn't, you know, he gets the city pretty well, but like he's not a native. So he can see he can see things in a different way than people who grew up here. But also like it's it's nice to have it's nice to have somebody. Uh, it's it's a nice aspect of him. And I think it really helps make his character work and helps the helps the narrative. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. I also liked a little bit the fact that uh, Moise was like, hey, Anoya, I made you. You owe me. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, the, like, just the entirety of, like, you would be, you know, you didn't have a proper priest last year. Right. <laughs> I love his prayer, rattling the, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. dead drawer around. Yeah. yeah. Uh, let's see. I mean, there's so much to like about this mm-hmm. book. Um we should probably move on, though, so that we don't run out of time. We've talked a lot about things that we do like about the book um, and some about things that we don't like. Are there other things that people did not like about the book or think it could have been done better? I think the ending with the clooper just doesn't make sense. It sort of feels like it's like backing down from the from like the thesis of the book a little bit. Like, oh, yeah. let's put all the gold back, but we don't need the gold. That's the point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And I like I get it. It's like Hubert is like doesn't understand that, but it's like, you know, it's like it still feels like it's a little just it doesn't really make sense as like a joke. Mm-hmm. Right. Apart from the fact mm-hmm. of, oh no, there's suddenly a lot of gold that shouldn't be there. I guess I don't know. I, I said this at the beginning, but I, I just feel like this book is loose. It's not as tight as the last like 10 books it's it there's there's frayed edges there's bits that don't go anywhere and i feel like it like missed and you know it it missed an editing cycle or something yeah and and, you know i i know Mm -hmm. that this is when things started to go a little rough for terry um Mm -hmm. and so maybe they just maybe some of it hit like when they were still figuring out how they're going to make the rest of it work i don't know i don't want to speculate that's somebody else's business not mine um, yeah, I also just like the day the Golem Deus Ex Machina just doesn't do it for me. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. just like it's fine. It's not. It's not a. It's not a particularly interesting ending for me. Uh, yeah, I get the. I, I can. Uh, I can see that. Yeah, I, I. I don't disagree with that as well. And for a mm-hmm. while there, like, as I had, I had uh, was listening at some point, and I was exhausted from my kids and the move that I've just done. So I fell asleep through part of it. And then, so I was like, oh, I'll just kind of keep listening. And then I was like, wait, where's the, what? Where'd these, where'd they come from? What was that again? And then I was like, there, I was listening to the, you know, re-listening to the huge part of the book. And I was like, they seem to come out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Am I wrong? Like. They're like, like from the very beginning, you know, uh, when, and when Adora Bell has the whole excavation in, in the low Kings yeah. terrain. Um, right. And so the, and then they, they talk to the professor. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, so her goal, the golems that she works with go down there and talk to them and then come back up and collapse the tunnels. And then the other golems walk themselves out so that she has the legal cover of, I didn't take anything. They just left. Mm-hmm. Oh, I think I might've <laughs> missed that part. I, I thought, yeah, maybe I just misunderstood, misunderstood that part. Cause mm-hmm. it seemed like, Oh, the golem, we sent golems down there. But then the tunnels collapsed and we can't talk to them anymore. Yeah. They're singing. I think it was, yeah. like, I was like, oh. air quotes, tunnels collapsed. Yeah. yeah. I, oh. think, I think it, 
I think that that is something that could have been clearer, though. I think you're right. Yeah. He drops the plot thread for parts of the book. So it's, when it gets picked back up, it's a little. Yeah, maybe there's a lot to process for mm-hmm. someone who hasn't read Terry in a while. So I, I maybe I just didn't grasp some of that because it was a pretty big bit at the end. And I was feeling like I don't feel like this part was was uh, foreshadowed very much. So, yeah, when you call it a deus ex machina, I was like, yeah, it is kind of. Like he was yeah. mentioned, sort of, yeah. And and it means that. that and it means that Moist's idea of you know staking the money on the city never never actually happens, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, and also his kind of thing about like it's his outfit, yeah, right? which is a callback <laughs> to the the first book that he was in, post in going, going postal. postal, yeah. Oh, uh, okay. Well, it was a callback. So so it was a callback that I didn't get. So right. I was just like. So the whole like it, it's okay for a for a book that you're reading. So your book you're reading, you're not seeing anything, mm-hmm. right? And so you're not reminded that he's constantly in a golden suit every second. Yeah. Like you know he's in one because it's been mentioned. But the people there know that. And you'd think that the professor would have recognized or seen something. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. It's like it's like the it's like the opposite of <laughs> so in, in comics they do <laughs> Sorry, this is, I don't know why this is a random, I gotta, I gotta make another yeah. DC reference. Um, so the Flash, Barry Allen has two twins and their names are Dawn and Dawn. But in the comic, you never think about it because it's D-O-N and D-A-W-N. But if you ever had kids, you would know that that's not going to work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. but because there's no but you don't even think about it until you get older that you've only seen it written down you've never heard this on a daily mm-hmm. basis uh, unless of course you're george foreman okay i don't want to get into that <laughs> there's always an exception that proves the rule but like you know what i'm yeah. saying so in this case it's almost like a visual bit of that like mm-hmm. oh we don't have a thing to show you so you kind of forget that he's wearing like a golden yeah outfit. and mm-hmm. normally yeah. if you saw someone he's like somebody's wearing a gold suit, it would be something that people would comment on all the time. Except Moise has been doing this for a fucking year, so nobody comments yeah. on it because everybody's like, oh no, he's just that weird guy. And so it's mentioned like, it it's was- mentioned to a point where it's like, you get it like in your first introduction to Moist, but you're not hammered over the head with it like you might have been in the first book, which I think is a weakness. So there was, yeah. There was a moment in which somebody said, like, they were saying, like, where's the gold? And mm-hmm. somebody yelled out, he's wearing it. Mm-hmm. Right. And then but it was like a weird little background right, yeah. thing. And I was like, OK, well, I guess they did kind of try to yeah. try to point out a little bit. But it did seem a little like it shouldn't have been like that big a leap, I would think. Yeah. I don't know. For something that simple, mm-hmm. especially with his with his fiance. Right. Adora is like she seemed. She seems super smart. Gosh, I, I, I mean, we haven't talked about her a lot because she's like she's sort of a side character in this book, and she doesn't get as much of a thing in a doorbell. But goddamn, I love her so much. <laughs> like, <it's, laughs> yeah, she's great. Yeah, the, she, the description fantastic. of her dress at the end, which is like it covers everything because that's more interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I don't like uh. the one thing I was like. I do not want to know what Moist Von Lipwick's fetishes are because they have got to be oh, he's disgusting. 
He is absolutely a bratty yeah, son. Yeah, I mean, that, yeah, there's one thing that is for sure in this book is that, like, Adorabelle steps on Moist, and God bless him, because I want that, too. Hopefully not yeah. in those heels, though, because yeah. that sounds oh, dangerous. Oh, no, he, he, like, yeah. the heels are part of the enticement for Moist. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta live on the edge. Uh, Speaking uh, of um, gender, though, and, and Adora a bit, though, the some of Pratchett's stuff on gender, I feel, feels like a throwback to how he handled it in earlier books versus more recent books like Monsters mm-hmm. Regiment. It's a bit when he's arguing with Adora and being like, only women can think like this about the 50-foot killer golems. Like, but I feel like the Gladys plot line is an even worse example of it. It, it just doesn't seem mm-hmm. to really go anywhere. And it's just weird in a way. It almost reads almost like, reminds me of sorcery. Or equal yeah. rights. It reminds me a bit more of equal rights and some of the, the gender essentialist stuff there. And just compared to how he handled golems and gender or like gender and stuff with dwarves or even um, monstrous regiment, it feels yeah. very out of place. Yeah, I it really like I didn't actually like the whole thing where she's influenced by the most recent piece of feminist literature she's read. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah, it, it like I understand the joke, but yeah. at the same I don't like yeah, the joke. I don't like the joke. Not, not when you get, like, the Fatal Attractions reference then with Mr. Fusspot in the kitchen. I thought that joke landed particularly badly. Yeah. That one seemed like it was kind of... I was like, was this foreshadowed somewhere? Like, she's, like... No. Doesn't like, that's, like, that's like part of the 15% that could have been cut. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think that was the necessary bit. There was one... Am I remembering it correctly? There was one... Oh, I think he was being interviewed by Carrot, and he was like, why is there a golem wearing a dress you know, going by, like, uh, how does a golem become a she? And his response was like, how does a golem become a he? And Carrot was like, yeah. good point. And then he, like, moved yep. on. And I was like, yeah, I was like, yeah, was okay, that was, that was, okay, yeah. I got you there, right? But the rest of it, I was just kind of like, or even when, wasn't it, um, was it the, I want to call it the House of Fools at the end with the clowns at the end. And there was something about, like, we don't allow women in mm-hmm. or whatever. They're mm-hmm. just not funny. It's stuff like that that I was just like, eh. yeah. I don't need, I don't need the, any of that. Yeah, I, I think the, yeah, the, I, I, the only reason I let the, 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 like the, the, the clown one didn't hit as hard for me because yeah, that, veterinary, that one, that one I thought because was hilarious. veterinary immediately shoots back. It's like, how curious I've never, I've never found a clown funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I felt like that was a like great highlight on sexism in like the stand up community and yeah. stuff like that. Mm-hmm. That you know, it's like you know that that the the establishment of the fools guild is like women aren't funny, and it's immediately like really, really now. Is yeah. there a callback to something? I think it's not the first time comments like that has been made. I think the other book, the the watch book where fools guild was really big on. I think there was a similar comment. When they talk about like the Fool's Guild versus the Conjurer's Guild, mm-hmm. I think there's a similar comment about that. Yeah, and you know the 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 bit that you highlighted, Rich, with Carrot, is um, an interesting character growth because he previously had some issues with the the gender revolution in in the Dwarven community, uh, and it's good Your to Carrot see. Carrot did, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. You, you have that to look forward to when you get around to reading the rest of the Watch books. Okay. Hopefully, good. hopefully, all this has inspired you to do a reread of the series, Rich. Uh, well, that's the whole point of the podcast. Yeah. So. When they decide to, when, when, when I'm done 
and they decide to just start over at the beginning because they don't because no they can never decide uh what book series they read <laughs> after you can just take my place <laughs> oh that's yeah. kind of perfect um, you, you, perfect yeah, yeah. you'll 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 have a set gig for three and a half years <laughs> right now if i only had internet at my house and i didn't have to like sponge off my nephew yeah. that'd be great so uh any other things we want to touch on before we move on to uh discord references the the last thing I wanted to touch on is that with with Poochie Lavish we have another character we have another example of a like somewhat villainous uh, fat character yeah. that we could have done without. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. He goes uh-huh. back to that well too many times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with with Cosmo too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wait, is Cosmo also described as obese? Yeah. Is yeah, there's there's yeah there's mention making like about his. They quite it. He goes quite a lot into like how trying to recreate that Nari's facial hairstyle really does not work. Mm-hmm. Um, and and, and, and I, that's also why the why he has the problem with the finger too. Mm-hmm. That, that his you know the yeah. the ring is too small for him because his fingers uh, are fat. Yeah, I didn't catch oh, that. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, yeah. I didn't catch any of that at all with him. Yeah. I have an absolute picture in my head of him as being skeletal. Yeah, yeah. with huh. really big knuckles. Like, yeah. like, and that veterinarian just had small fingers. I don't know, but that I did not catch the. I did, I did with his sister. His, I mean, that was just like there was no subtlety there. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. he literally it reminded me of Matt Gray. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Has Cosmo um, come, come in in other books before no, this one? No, no, no. Um, okay, so I just missed it. Then. I think but it's that it's not it's not harped on the way that it is for Poochie. Um, which yeah. is also a thing about women and looks and yeah you know like the only reason mm-hmm. she has a waist is because of you know yeah like, and and it's it's yeah. you know at this point at this point on book 36 it's gone from it's gone from like rolling my eyes and being like well those were those were you know the olden times to like rolling my eyes and being like this wasn't that long yeah. ago yeah it, this should have been better got better about other stuff why did he seem to not get better about this so other i mean we're like near the end of the series now so there's lots and lots and lots of references we could pull on (laughs) but um i definitely like the veterinary need a button that says tyrant um i also we saw mrs cake again yeah yeah for realsies and and her and ludmilla which was only appeared in like maybe two or three books Mm -hmm. yeah um, yeah, we, I think we called uh, out the the axe that Vimes buries in Veterinary's table, um, which I think was from Feet of Clay or maybe Jingo. I can't remember mm-hmm. which. Um, somebody's going to correct me online and I won't pay attention. <laughs> um, but a lot of the ones that I've put in here, I've already, yeah. already talked about. I, I, I do want to because yeah. there's a lot of interesting, like, a uh, there's a lot of fun, interesting round world references, and I'm honestly, I- I'm intrigued by yeah. those. Yeah, let's let's talk about yeah. let's talk about the round world references. <laughs> Fornication. <laughs> I it made sense. Yeah. I actually I actually thought that I actually played that in a trivia thing. I was playing with some friends the other day because it sounded like it was it sounded like it was the correct answer. <laughs> <laughs> <It> was not. <laughs> 
Um, but yeah, the pennies are in fact more expensive to make than to spend. And for that, I they, they are one of my sworn enemies. <laughs> I was li- I was living in Canada when Canada uh, decided to do away with the penny. Huh. Oh. I've been waiting for that here desperately. Yeah. And people people were people were like very upset about it and then forgot about it immediately. And then the other one, the, the the small thing that's referenced early on, the the post office uh, introduces a series of increasingly improbable animals to deal with a um, with a slug issue, um, because they introduce toads to deal with the slugs, and then they introduce snakes to deal with the toads, and then they introduce mongoose to in, uh, to deal with the snakes. And I immediately thought of the biologist who uh, lives in Australia, which has had a very similar issue. Yep. Yep. Yep, there's, it, it's a, it's a thing. We're going to introduce cane toads to deal with the sugarcane beetle. Oh, okay. What do we have to eat the sugarcane toads? Uh, cred. Now some native birds have figured out how to eat them um, safely. <laughs> but, or, um, or ferrets working. There are some places in the world that have working ferrets to keep down on the rabbit population. But there are other places that have banned ferrets because they'll go after the rabbits, but they'll also go after a lot of native critters that might be tastier were more endangered than rabbits, mm-hmm. which is why ferrets are banned in California. They also did like myxomatosis or something to deal with the rabbits. Is yes. that right? Yeah. Yes. And then also the rabbit proof fence, which had a lot of other issues. There's right. There's been a couple of different, different ways to um, handle invasive critters and they've gotten a lot better at it. I actually know someone, um, I know some people who work in that like sort of biosecurity side of things for the government so they've gotten a lot better at it, but some of the earlier attempts were, yeah, about that level. <laughs> it's also why that's also why there's like the the really paranoid biosecurity people at any like port of entry into Australia with the sniffer dogs and everything <laughs> to stop things from getting in. Well, I mean, we're dealing with that here in in the, the on the eastern seaboard too with the um, with the spotted lanternfly. Yeah. Um, but this isn't a last continent podcast. Uh, <laughs> should we talk a little bit about the glooper from a round world perspective? Yeah. Oh God. Yes. Yes. Uh, because according to notes, this is actually directly taken from a Phillips economic computer, which was uh, a water powered computer devised in 1949 uh, that was so good at reproducing an, uh, an economic cycle that the last of the machines was, Still being used in the 1990s when, um, when compute like local uh, supercomputers finally caught up to its uh, modeling ability. Yeah, that that is wild. Which, yeah, yeah, that is amazing. That that really is. And, and there's some other stuff that that I found that is related to Terry's uh, first job, which was. Um, a, a communications person for the uh, British Nuclear Power Agency, um, which was a successor to a prototype nuclear to a company the company that built a prototype nuclear reactor called the Gleep, uh, which was the graphic low energy experimental pile, mm. which has to be what Glooper is coming from, in some way. Beautiful. Um, yeah, like the emergent properties from the Glooper. That's that's the real thing when you get mechanistic modeling. That's that's one of the goals. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. We're trying to, you know, trying to model latent variables that are very hard or impossible to measure with things that you can more directly observe, but still get those response patterns. Um, a cool thing, though, is that 
Isaac Newton actually got given the position of head of the Royal Mint as sort of a, a thin cure, so that he had something to, you know, basically like a retirement job. Huh. But he took it really seriously and actually instituted a bunch of anti-counterfeiting reforms, um, moved it to the gold standard, so not quite the same as Moist, but again, um, he did like a massive overhaul, basically as what was meant to be just like a cushy, you have the job, you get paid for it, not expecting you to actually do anything other than show up for your paycheck job. Huh. Um, one other thing that I wanted to mention is that this whole book is a reference to the board game Monopoly because there's paper money, a little dog, a pair of boots, a top hat, an iron in the person of Gladys. Jenkins at one point considers a battleship. Dibbler asks for a loan to buy a wheelbarrow and Moist acquires a horse. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> uh, yeah. Perfect. And, oh, and then later on acquires a railroad. But we'll get to that. Oh. Um, <laughs> so... Uh, yeah. Before we wrap up, uh, let's uh, Holland and Rich. Do you want to be found on the internet anywhere? Um, do I want to be found? I've never been asked that question on a podcast. I mean, if you, yeah. <laughs> um, you, I'm difficult to find on the internet. You can find me on Twitter at Umbral Walker, or you can go to Descent into Midnight on Twitter or Whelmed to the Unjustice Files on Twitter. Um, and you can kind of chat in my general direction there. I'm mostly on Discord these days. Um, part of a major life change, including increased mental health, was getting off of social media. So you can find me periodically on Twitter. I poke my head in there like maybe once a month just to look around or when somebody sends me a link, but I'm not on there regularly at this point. If you want to hear more of me, then you can check out Whelm the Young Justice Files podcast. We have hundreds of episodes, um, including some Pretty uh, amazing, in, in, in my opinion, interviews with cast and crew members, um, fans of the show from different um, professional backgrounds um, that talk about um, their favorite things uh, about DC Comics and such. Um, or um, you can go to DescendantMidnight.com and you can watch our Kickstarter video. I'm in that as well. I will say that Descendant of Midnight is the the re- reason for several very, very, very impactful sessions of role-playing games in my life. Uh, prob- several of the most memorable ones that I've ever had, and I'm old. Thank you. Yeah, I will forever remember throwing a pencil at you for making me cry. It was a Sharpie. Was it a Sharpie? Yeah. I don't, I don't remember what it was. There was a pile of things. I grabbed the closest thing and threw it at your face. It was, it was, it, it was like, I think that might've been game six of that week. I, I don't know when we played that. I did yeah. six, six demo games that weekend and every one of them completely wrecked me emotionally in <laughs> ways that I love to talk about. Um, your, yours was ugh, particularly heartbreaking in a beautiful way. It was gorgeous. So, yeah. So anyway, so you can go to uh, descendantmidnight.com and check it out. The game should be coming out. We had a successful Kickstarter right as the world started burning um, with COVID. Um, and then, uh, so we've had some delays in the production, but we're landing the plane here pretty soon. So you can go check it out. On Holland? Um, I can be found on Twitter at, at Doc Holland D. So um, I still use it just because there's still some of us scientists still clinging on there. But it, it's professional. It's neat. Photos is my cat's nerdy stuff. Um, I'm there. I'm also on Discord. Uh, any other social media logins are between me and God. <laughs> <laughs> all right all right let's do some ratings uh 
Anna, you want to lead us off? Sure. Uh, I'm going to give it 3,500 out of 4,000 ancient golems. Eight out of nine of Igor's lightning cells. Uh, I'm uh, I'm giving it four out of five dead fingers. <laughs> I will give it eight out of ten of the remaining dollars I've got in my wallet. Uh, and I will give it uh, eight out of the 11 remaining uh, blue triangle stamps. Uh, and now... Nice. Before we uh, before we wrap up, uh, we get to our final bit, which is Justin reading the blurb from the next book. The Wizard at Ankh-Morpork's Unseen University. Oh, sorry. The next book we are reading, which is going to be book 37, which means we are in the final five. Our next book is Unseen Academicals. The Wizards at Ankh-Morpork's Unseen University are renowned for many things. Wisdom, magic, and their love of tea time. But athletics is most assuredly not on the list. So when Lord Veninari, the city's benevolent tyrant, strongly suggests to Arch-Chancellor Mustram Ridcully that the university revive an erstwhile tradition and once again put forth a football team composed of faculty, students, and staff, or lose the funding that pays for their nine daily meals, the wizards of Unseen University find themselves in a quandary. To begin with, they have to figure out what it is that makes this sport of foot the ball so popular with Ankhmore Parkians of all ages and social strata. Then they have to learn how to play it. Oh, and on top of that, they must win a football match without using magic. And the thing about football, the most important thing about football, is that it is never just about football. I cannot wait to troll all of our Commonwealth audience with why soccer is the correct word. <laughs> Get no, ready for that in I'm four to five the, weeks. <laughs> I'm just I'm like just putting put up the a double lasso lasso you're like this. so gold. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know what? I, I'm on, I'm on team, but I'm on team Commonwealth for, for that. But then there's also Aussie rolls football. So there's like, you're going to be having to troll with like which version of football we're right. here. We'll, we will get, uh, we will have this conversation in a month. Um, <laughs> and you will get to listen to it in a month. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll see. Yeah. I'll, I, there will be, we get to do a sports book. I like we've reached like more than criminals. This is my element. <laughs> uh, from all of us here uh, across the globe. Uh, good night and good luck. The Complete Discography is an independent production by four people who just really like these books. All opinions expressed during the show are our own. All quotes from primary or related works are used under the fair use doctrine and remain copyrighted by their original owners. The music from this podcast is sourced from Incompetech. That info can be found in the show notes. The rest of it is distributed under a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it. Please share it, but say where you got it, don't make money off it, and don't change it. Connect with the show at Pod, which is A-T-U-I-N underscore P-O-D, or email us at atuin.pod at gmail.com.